welcome to episode 46 of Utah in the Weeds. I'm Chris Hollifield. And I'm your host, Tim Pickett, medical cannabis expert in Utah. This week we have Dashel, the CEO of Boojum, who we talked to, and it was a pretty interesting conversation about the, the market in Utah, his background. Terpenes. I mean, we got into uh, Yeah, we know, got into some pretty technical uh, technical aspects of cannabis and Boojum's products, uh, how they pick products, their most... It was uh, fascinating. It was, it was right? really fascinating because like you said, how do people decide which products are going to hit the shelves? And that's why yeah. you got to listen to this episode to find out how they do their products, how they get their products, uh, he revealed where his they're most going, common, or his, uh, the, pop, the most products popular. that are most popular. And I think it's a good, it's great in Utah because we, we don't have a huge market and there's not a ton of players in the market. So we're able to interview these guys and you can really get a, get a handle or a sense of who these companies are. You get an intimate you know, relationship the with them almost, yeah. you know? So yeah, you're going to enjoy this, this conversation. Uh, go to utahmarijuana.org slash podcast to listen to all the podcast episodes. Uh, you can listen right there on the website. You could subscribe in whatever podcast player you listen to this in. Absolutely. And, There's a, uh, as far as maybe a little bit of housekeeping, just so uh, patients are aware, uh, Utah Therapeutic, utahmarijuana.org has opened, uh, is opening up in Bountiful and soon to be back in Provo Awesome. in the next little while. So if you are a patient and you need help, reach out to us there. Utahmarijuana.org is the, is the website right. for that. And you can go to IamSaltLake.com to listen to my other podcast, I Am Salt Lake Podcast. Go check that out. If you love interviews with people in Utah, go give that one a listen. Um, but otherwise, let's get into this conversation, Tim. Yeah, I'm excited. Anyways, here we go, guys. Let's start with you. What got you involved in Boojum? Like, is that, is that a good place to start? That's with? a great place to start because I think, you know, we were talking a little bit before we even started recording. The story, it's, it's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'll back it up just a little bit in terms of how I came to founding Boojum with, uh, with yeah. my partner. So I uh, grew up down in Moab, Utah. After that, I just, I bailed. I was like, all right, I got to go to another state. My parents wanted me to go to uh, you know, a good university. Ended up going to San Diego. Ended up coming back to finish at the University of Utah, and I studied film uh, with a, a focus in uh, European art cinema, actually, surprisingly enough. <laughs> this is wait, your parents, I mean, to just jump right in here, your parents are like, you need to go get a great education. Uh -huh. You go and you study film. Did they feel fine about that? They felt fine about that. As long as there was a direction to it, you know, that I was passionate about, um, I don't think they really cared what it was. And I think also it was kind of the end goal of just having a degree. Uh, you know, my dad's obviously from that baby boomer generation, and that's just what was done, right? Um, so I, after finishing college, I went out to Los Angeles and worked as a producer-editor which in the industry you would call a predator, for, for better or worse. Uh, so I would go out and I would produce segments and come back and edit them uh, with the producers in-house. And we would go out and we would sell sizzle reels. So we would do reality shows. Uh, Intervention was one of the ones that was under our roof. Um, we did Trisha Yearwood's Southern Cooking. You know, we're not out there making anything super fun like Pirates of the Caribbean, but... You know, that's where I really kind of uh, cut my teeth, so to speak, um, in, in, in media and in marketing. After that, I jumped over and started working for a marketing agency 
out in Los Angeles called Cybrid Media. And we worked with a bunch of different big publications and we would just move eyeballs online, right? So worked with a lot of uh, ad dollars. You know, so I was doing that for quite a while, um, got a little bit burnt out on it because at the end of the day, you know, you can be a film student and wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and you go out there and while you're able to work yourself into somewhat of a creative position, maybe filming a reality show on a Malibu beauty pageant is not necessarily where you wanted to end up, right? So after that, I jumped uh, over more into marketing and worked with uh, a company called Cybrid Media. We worked with a bunch of very large publications online. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of like The Chive and Bro Bible and stuff like that. Um, cool. They were some clients of ours. And, Name sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, and then Bleacher Report, uh, who ended up getting uh, acquired by Turner, I think, a couple of years after for like 150 million or something. Um, and then after I moved downtown, um, I started my own marketing agency out there and we focused exclusively on cannabis. So we started doing marketing, um, comm strategy, comm planning uh, for some big cannabis companies out there, such as Eureka Vapor, Fly Vape, companies that have Mostly gotten their start out of Colorado and then expanded into California, Oregon, Washington uh, afterwards. You know, marketing is something I like to do. It helps kind of feed the creative side, I guess. However, I always wanted to be in the supply chain and I always wanted to be making, you know, a commodity and a good that we could actually sell. Uh, So when the laws back here in my home state in Utah changed in 2018 to allow and regulate the production of hemp and CBD, I moved back out here. And we were, if not the first, one of the first two or three hemp processors that were licensed here in the state. So we've been out here really from the very beginning. Um, I you know, I, I'm not going out on a limb by saying our intention was always to want to to get into medical sure. as well. Um, we built out our initial facility according to all the rules and regulations so that when that time did come, we'd be able to switch over very quickly, which is what we've been able to do. And the marketing with the cannabis in California gives you a pretty good idea of what the restrictions are. Mm-hmm. And we haven't talked too much about this aspect of cannabis, Chris, on the podcast, but the you know, marketing anything with the word cannabis, the word marijuana in it is, it's, it's just not allowed. No mm-hmm. Google AdWords, mm-hmm. no, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard to do anything. Facebook shuts you down. You can't boost any posts. Do you feel like that's a, that's been a huge benefit or kind of a benefit? Um, well, I don't know if I, I, I'd call that a, a benefit maybe to me personally in learning how to navigate proper marketing channels because, like you said, you can't run, you can't run ads, right, on Instagram right. or Facebook or Google or anything like that. Um, not even for CBD unless you really know what you're doing and you're working with a good agency. So what that forced us to do was to find other ways that we can market, right? And so a lot of what that is is either micro-influencer or social influencer campaigns. Or coming for, on a podcast. Like or, coming right? on a yeah. podcast. or coming on coming yeah. on the podcast yeah. and talking about it. Yeah, and just trying to, you know, the be- the best way to market right now and what the industry needs is really just education. So really? that's what we've really um really leaned into in uh in twenty twenty and going into uh this year, twenty twenty one. Did you ever think Utah was gonna get to where it is? I mean, because you mentioned you you got your processing license. How many how many processing licenses do they give out? Remind me. 
Did they give out so like the, pr- six? the processing license is um, not limited on oh, my cultivation okay. and uh, at the pharmacy and retail level. And I think their reasoning for that is that if you cap and you create limited licenses on the cultivation side, ideally a free market that that that's going to find its own equilibrium, right? So, because there's only so much supply. So anybody can get a processing license. Well, not anybody. Well, you have to apply. Yeah, for it. you you have to apply for it. And one thing to keep in mind here in Utah is that. They, they did a really good job looking at other more mature markets and seeing how they developed, right, by allowing uh, things like outside capital to allow the trikes or the Columbia Cares or whatnot to come in, which was really important for, you know, a nascent industry because at the end of the day, what these MSOs did is they came in and they were the ones with the supply and they were the ones cutting the checks, right? So they really did help support the industry. I'm sure you guys are familiar with like Randy over at Trike. And I don't think there's a single group or person in this industry right now that cannot attribute some sort of their growth to Randy and Trike and these other large MSOs. Sure. I mean, Trike's putting out the most product right now. I don't think they will for forever, but it's definitely companies like companies like that. Even I think companies like Cureleaf who come in and help you know, not only just have a, like a retail license, but have, they're, they're good at what they do. They're multi-state. They can help shape the, the growth of the industry just by being here and just yeah. by being at the table involved yeah. in the conversation. Do you feel like Boojum, because they were early now, is that something Boojum, you know, like sees themselves as a leader in this space now because you've been here around? I mean, your name is known yeah. all over the medical market now. I think that being an, an early mover and a first mover is is pretty crucial, right? Not only in a state like Utah, which, you know, to kind of go back and answer your question, did you see it happening here? Like, maybe not as soon as it did, right? Yeah. Um, it, it happened very, very, very quickly. And I think uh, the CBD and hemp markets kind of helped that happen. But in terms of getting in early, you know, and being a first mover, if you look at other companies in other states, when you go in and you can acquire that early market share, eventually when these adult use and these recreational markets do do dovetail with medical markets, um, historically, it's those early movers that are going to have, you know, really dominate, be able to dominate the market. Do you think that um, hemp, being involved in the hemp and the medical marijuana market is something that's... Is it unique to Boojum in Utah? It seems it seems more unique. Like Zion isn't doing any uh, a lot of hemp processing, or you know, Trike's not doing any hemp processing. So both both uh, I know that Trike they do have their hemp cultivation license as well. Zion I believe they do as well. I think that having having one foot in each market's very important in Utah. They were actually the first state to allow that interplay between the two markets, um, allowing the hemp byproduct, right, or those remediation fractions, or even just hemp itself to be transferred into the medical market. Now, the way that they initially wrote that law was that uh, cannabis processors would be able to purchase hemp as well. Now, that got rolled back for a number of reasons so that now only medical cannabis cultivators can bring that hemp into the market. Right. But it's 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 a strategic play by a lot of the groups. And I think it's an important one for us. You know, that's really where we learned how to do what we do. Right. That's where we developed our applications and our extraction methods and our processes. And that's what allowed us to really hit the ground running, being the first medical cannabis processor here in the state. Also, there are other strategic benefits of having both licenses, primarily dealing with taxes and IRS tax code section 280E. 
Oh yeah, 280E. This was this has come up in a couple of our Which interviews. is remind me what 280E is. So section 280E says that if you are trafficking a controlled one scheduled substance, you cannot write off anything outside of your cost of goods. So all of your business expenses, um, you know, your SGNA, you're going to get taxed on all that. Any mileage, anything. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, nothing yeah. except for the cost of goods that you produce, mm-hmm. which is obviously the or ingredients to improve the or to improve those goods, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's and just... the, and the labor that goes into directly plant touching personnel. This cannot be understated in the argument to legalize or decriminalize the cannabis market, the high THC market, because the government gets a pretty significant benefit by the way it is run now mm-hmm. in the tax code. Very true. Yeah. the, um, the I think that's one reason when people are like, oh, are, are we going to legalize now that the Dems have you know the, the, the tie-breaking vote in the Senate and control the House? And, you know, it's not that simple of an issue to really unpack, first off. Right. Uh, second off, the federal government makes more money with cannabis being illegal due to Section 280E and civil forfeiture laws. And they probably know that. Yes. Well, I'm sure they do. When they, you know, when they do the budget and they, they come up with a bill and they, they say this is, the, this is the benefit or the decrease in tax revenue by doing this bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's, it's a complicated process. Didn't uh dispensaries like in California run into stuff like that with like uh with this last year with COVID not getting any COVID relief and stuff like that because of a lot of that too didn't that have something to do with it too yeah or? well so PPE loans yeah. the small business loans I would be surprised if there were even many uniquely hemp uh companies that even got those loans yeah, wow. right because at the end of the day the 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 you you have the FDA and you have the USDA and you have the DEA who potentially misled some of these government agencies um, with an oversimplification of the process. Um, A lot of the issues that we see that have created dysfunction in the supply chains you know, that that is caused by a simple misunderstanding of the complexities of the extraction process, right? At, at any point, if I take uh, material grown for CBD or CBG or whatever it is, and I bring it into the lab and I distill that down, that's going over point, now even over 1%, right? That's going to be at least 2 to 3% oh, yeah. in THC. And this is like every time. Every single right? time. Right, this is every single time. We talked to Kyle Egbert about this. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing really you can do until the next step when you can take it out, right? Correct. So what a lot of companies, you know, will do, and one thing that we had to do as a pivot um, after that crash in July of 2019 is to regain our margins, we had to go back to the drawing board, right? And we had to take it all the way to the finished product, right? This is the crash you're talking about where the hemp price, the price of like raw materials just went through the floor. Yeah, completely. Um, when we first started, the first batch of hemp that that we bought uh, got shipped in out of Oregon, and we paid fifty five dollars a pound on that. Uh, it showed up; it was touted as maybe eleven, twelve percent CBD. Uh, we ran it through our extraction system. We got nowhere near the yield we thought we were going to get. We got it tested, and it was really around four percent. So we were paying fifty five dollars a pound for four percent material. If you were to go out now and pay fair market value for hemp or CBD material, you're looking at a dollar to three dollars per pound. So the the, the fall w- was drastic. That's and, pretty. Wow. And it completely obliterated so the, the wholesale markets. Right. So if I now am buying this hemp. 
taking it down to distillate, we started to see the cost of distillate go from 45 to 35 to 25. Now I believe it's somewhere, you know, sub $500. Um, so it's almost become cost prohibitive to be working as a, as a wholesaler with raw ingredients. So if you take that and you tack on top of it, um, the, the potential liabilities of having to transfer that oil now out of a state to where maybe that's where your only buyer is. Maybe you don't have those local supply chains because of rules and regulations like we see in Utah that have really throttled distribution. These are the rules of hemp selling hemp in state. Yes, yes, selling hemp in state. Primarily, um, you know, one, we can't market, we can't advertise it, right? Is this the same as the medical market or do you just, because Boojum's in the medical market, now you can't advertise at all, period? Um, we don't like to advertise, um, obviously, I mean, even sponsored content, we wouldn't do things like this. We love to do because, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a collaboration. This is just a, yeah, right? it's, it's, a con- a conversation. it's a conversation, right? This, yeah. this we do because people are interested in yeah. what's going on Yeah, and there's no other route to get the information. Right. Right. Exactly. So th- I think th- this is, it's super important to have these conversations. And when you talk about the hemp, you know, like distribute distributing hemp and distilling it and then the the interplay between the medical market and the hemp market it always comes up in these conversations that there's this it's just a weird place to be mm-hmm. anything over 3% but under i would say 15% mm-hmm. right because the market seems to be like this 15% flower mm-hmm. is like this gray area it mm-hmm. seems like and there's a huge benefit if we switch and pivot and talk about medicine, mm-hmm. there's a massive benefit between 3.3% THC and 15% or mm-hmm. 03 and 3%. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, a- a- absolutely. Um, you know, that's one reason why we wanted to jump into medical is, is because we wanted to f- focus on making medicine. Um, much like every, uh, a million other people that you'll talk to in this industry, local or nationally, um, our belief in cannabis is all stemmed from anecdotal experience, or we have a loved one or a relative or somebody that cannabis was the only thing providing, say, end-of-life care or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to fully tap into the potential of this plant on the cannabinoid production side, you really want to be able to play with all of those compounds. Right. Absolutely. If we talk about Boojum and what products they're making now, do you do you feel like you got into medical and you have favorite products? Does Boojum have favorite products? Sure. So even on the uh, on the CBD side, we we always took a pretty firm strategic position, and that was really to focus on value add type products. And what I mean by that is infused products. Uh, we do not sell flour. We do not co-pack flour or or put it on the market. Um, we also have not even branched into any sort of uh, smokable or inhalation type of device just yet, primarily because we don't think that smoking flour is really the best medicine. You're not getting, um, you know, you're maybe getting five to seven percent of what's actually in there versus when we have something like an oral spray or a tincture and we're dosing it based off of the active molecule, meaning that if we're putting in a thousand milligrams of, let's say, THC, we're not just going to weigh that out and put it in there. You're going to say, okay, this THC oil tested at 80%, so I need to account for that when I'm formulating this. And I know that every single spray 
or every gummy or every, um, you know, 0.25 ml of a tincture is exactly the dose that I'm looking for. So by focusing not only on one specific area in the supply chain, which is the processing and not trying to overextend into cultivation and, and retail, and then also focusing on acquiring market share in the infused edible category just gave us a very clear direction and, and has really allowed us to, uh, to focus on what we're good at. And it's a, it's a short-term, it's kind of a short-term play, but it's really more of a long-term play when you look at the trajectory of these infused products and how much market share they're eating into um, from flour. Even the numbers that the Utah Department of Health released recently, we're seeing flour um, lose market share month over month. I think right now it sits around 35% or so. Yeah, we would say, I would say that the, I would agree with that. And I would agree that like in Utah's market specifically, you have a lot of the early adopters, right? A lot of the early patients are going to be those who use flour. Mm-hmm. They're going to be what we've called legacy users, those people who are experienced with cannabis. In the beginning, we were seeing maybe eight or 10, you know, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 patients that had already, they were using cannabis and only one in 10 were not using or cannabis was new. Now, I mean, it's 35, 40% of our patients are new to cannabis altogether. Wow. And it's a, that's a huge number for only this far into the program. But those patients are not using flour. Mm-hmm. They want concentrates. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not concentrates in the, in the smokable concentrates realm. Sure. They want tinctures and edibles oral sprays, things that are easily dosed that are more conspicuous because they, we, I mean, this is a Mormon culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I think Boojum really fits in there. We talk a lot about Boojum with our patients because of the dosing. Specifically, you came out with a product, that cheek spray, that people really like. Yeah. It, because it's a, it's a metered dose and metered dose, frankly, metered dose inhalers are needed. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants to produce one, I mean, I think it would. It's it's an important piece. Yeah, but they're metered dose. They're they're good effect, and they were low dose. Mm-hmm. There's two kind of things I, I want to talk about. Talk about your talk about the team at Boojum. You know, how do products like that? Who's involved in development of that? So um, with the with a lot of the initial product development, um, a lot of that was. Um, so my role in it, I'll start with, is uh, is market data, right? Coming from marketing and advertising, like we clean data and we look at it. We look at uh, reports from, you know, MJ Business. We look at reports from New Frontier Data. We compile as much data as we possibly can and we clean it and we try to make actionable, you know, strategies off of it. And we also want to know who we're selling to and we want to serve a very specific patient even. The reason for the oral spray, and that was a conversation between Brittany and myself and Olivia Kulander, our chief science officer, was to um, really bring down the onset time of an infused edible product. And because you're spraying that in the part, it's kind of breaking up the particle size and going under your tongue as opposed to going through, you know, your first pass metabolism and digestion and everything. That's why the onset time is for a lot of people, and this varies a lot between, you know, individuals, you know, under 20 minutes even, right? So now we have an alternative to uh, inhalation uh, devices or flower for patients with crippling anxiety or PTSD or something like that. Where they where they can have a trigger event 
They can use the product and they can get effect without inhaling. Yeah. Right. With exactly. that product. Yeah. So yeah, I would say typically when we're going and we're looking at, okay, what products do we want to do? Um, one, the market data has to, has to be there. Right. Um, and if you look at market data and you look at uh, these other states with these more mature markets, if you're trying to be profitable in this industry, I mean, it's not, I mean, it is a green rush in some sense, but it's not that easy to come in and be profitable and be successful in cannabis. And we saw that play out um, in Canada. We've seen it play out here. We've seen the rise and fall of groups like Canopy Growth and, and Medmen. Um, yeah. So if you look at the data, uh, if you only have two to three SKUs, maybe only 10% of those companies are going to be profitable. If you start releasing more products and casting a wider net, if you have seven to 10 SKUs, now 80% of those companies are profitable, right? And so there's a lot of really simple data like this that you can look at to make better business decisions. But that's, that's, that's not where the buck stops. That's only one part of it. The other part of it is the research that we do into, okay, well, what is the best delivery method? What is the best, uh, can what are the best cannabinoids and ratios? And for us, the one thing that we've been pushing very hard is what is the best terpene profile to add to supplement to this medicine? So typically, Brittany and I will go back and forth about a product. Olivia will go and she'll do a bunch of research. Uh, we'll write in internal lit reviews on different scientific studies, which we will, you know, if we ever publish those online, obviously they are all cited to find, okay, well, what does the research say? What kind of a, what, what kind of a medicine do we want to put out there? And then, so we'll join the market data and we'll join the research and then we'll, we'll put a product out there. Um, and I think over the last, what is it, eight months or so of this program, everybody's really just kind of been a being a bunch of stuff, right? Like, okay, well, what works? What do we want to put out there? Mm -hmm. um, I think that we've launched maybe six or seven, maybe even eight different tincture varieties with different terpenes on them to see, okay, well, do patients, are they educated on terpenes? Do they know what they want? And we've seen incredibly positive market signals on terpenes. Terpenes is something that is, is going to be huge because at the end of the day, if somebody's trying to classify a plant as an indica or sativa, it's not the cannabinoid profile that determines that. It's the terpene profile. Yeah, it's the steering wheel of the of the product, really. Mm -hmm. These citrusy terpenes being the sativas, the, the more earthy terpene smells. You know, if you were to just paint with a broad brush, it seems like that's the more indica style. Mm -hmm. And then that translates really into what types of patients will experience, you know, what effects. Mm -hmm. Of course, everybody's a little bit different. So when you're building when you're building these tinctures and you have a lot of different, you know, what do you recommend the patients do when there's so much variety? Yeah, um, and I mean that's why it's really important to have educated pharmacies, bud tenders, and then even groups like yourselves that can kind of give them this advice. But what it really is going to come down to is, um, and I just want to say one thing: like people that we've been shocked at how many people do know what their favorite terpene is. Oh, right? yeah. It's surprising. But uh, aside from that, for somebody to be able to learn, okay, well, I like limonene versus a, a myrcene or something. It's education, education, education. And then they just, you know, the, eventually they'll try it, right? And so the three terpenes that we've seen um, that have been the most successful and have gotten the, we've gotten the most feedback on are your uh, your limonene, like you were mentioning. It's kind of your, your citrusy, you right. know, morning 
terpene. And then um, your beta-caryophylline has been uh, hugely popular, and then myrcene. Those are the ones that we're really seeing, which is interesting because if you were to kind of draw out a little schematic in terms of, okay, maybe this is an indica or this is a sativa or another way to think about it, here's your morning, here's your all-day hybrid, right, in the middle, and then here is your um, your evening gummy, which is going to be more like your, your indica or something uh, right. because it has myrcene in it. So let's back up here a little bit because I think when people listen to this episode, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of people who understand the terpenes, the cannabinoids, but I think we could we could spend just a minute and correct me if I'm wrong here. But so when we talk about cannabinoids, those are the compounds within the plant that are expressed as the plant grows. They're part of the plant. Typically, those are are those can be manipulated through the processing and building of a product like a like a tincture you can add or subtract cannabinoids depending on the processing but it's that's, that's more so, so, difficult yeah so that's not that's not necessarily you, you don't really subtract or add different cannabinoids cannabinoids right, right? okay so yes uh, and 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 i agree with that there however then you go into the terpenes and cannabinoids we don't know we know some about, but we that's what we're learning more and more and more about. CBG, CBN, these the different cannabinoids and what they do. We know a lot more about terpenes. And terpenes give the odor of the of the plant and like you were saying, they give the they give the sativa effect versus the indica effect. Mm-hmm. Beta caryophylline is known for kind of an anti-inflammatory as well. They can be they can have medicinal properties. Beta-caryophylline is very high in some of these hazes and cushes that are good for pain. So pain patients tend to lean to strains like that even. Yeah. So when you build a product like Bujum Builds, then you can you can create a recipe mm-hmm. that takes the, the plant material in the, in the concentration and then adds terpenes to it to, like I was saying, a steering wheel effect yep. to adjust the results for the patient. Yep, exactly. In a way, exactly. Um, so yeah, and there's a, there's a couple different ways you can do this throughout the uh, the extraction process, right? So the way that we extract at our facility, we do use ethanol. We use a cryoethanol, and we run it incredibly, incredibly chilled. Um, we've done a lot of A/B testing. Um, surprisingly enough. You know, a difference in 10 degrees temperature from maybe negative 70 to negative uh, 60 or even negative 55 is going to affect the yield of various cannabinoids, right? So they, they all have a proclivity to come out at kind of a different temperature, which is very interesting. Um, so we, we pull it out and then we do what you would call a full spectrum oil or as other, you know, industries would call a FICO oil, a full extra, extract cannabis oil. What that means is that you're only doing an ethanol extraction. You may filter it with uh, with membranes or diatomaceous earth or something along those lines, um, and then you're going to pull the solvent out of it. However, all of those natural terpenes um, that did manage to survive and last through the curing process are still retained in that full-spectrum extract. So our oil is an FSO, full-spectrum oil, meaning we do not further distill it. Now, if you wanted to go further and make a product such as something that would be used for, for vaping, you know, you're going to want to distill that further, right? There's other plant compounds that are in there that are going to make that experience much less enjoyable. That's why a FICO oil or an FSO oil or an RSO oil um, is typically um, ingested orally uh, with food. 
So then, so if you go down to the distillation, then you're stripping those terpenes out. So now you just have a distillate. And the reason that you would do that is to increase the potency of those cannabinoids. So if you want to take that and then now put it into a cart or, um, you know, any other kind of product that you would really taste, you know, you're going to have to re-add those terpenes back in now. You're not going to have those original terpenes anymore. We're going to become experts, Chris. Yeah, no. Well, you mentioned that limonene. My wife uses that. She uses yeah. the bougie limonene. Oh, really? She loves Fantastic. it. She, she's gotten into I, I don't know a whole lot about it. Helps her with her ADD, I guess, you know? So yeah. It helps yeah. I mean, it's a definitely focused, like daytime you know? use. Yeah. So it's great. Yeah. And so one one reason why I think our, our products have have really resonated with uh, with the patients here in Utah is that we don't go through that distillation process, so we keep as much of the original compounds intact as possible, which makes it a little bit more difficult when it comes to the, the patient or user experience and the flavor profiles, right? Because right. CBD oil or THC oil does not taste good. No, right? it, it, tastes, <laughs> it tastes terrible. <laughs> and so that's where our product development chief and, and confectionery guy, Julian Hensarling, comes in. Uh, he he comes in and and we look at oh, okay he was he's gonna get uh, featured yeah right coming up in Salt yeah. Lake City right yeah yep. yeah shout out yeah, to Cole he, there he, he will be but he's he's incredibly talented and he's able to take that that original oil and put it into a tincture and then supplement it with some other terpenes um, that do not come from that plant originally to be clear different terpenes to actually make that you know uh, a product that you can wash down. Right, <laughs> right. right. Or that tastes decent or, mm -hmm. yeah. So so he works with the original terpenes that are in that full spectrum oil, supplements them with some others. And then in the case of a gummy or something like that with other flavors to to make the most enjoyable product when it comes to flavor. And then also that's what really makes our products so effective is that we are using that full spectrum because you know you can go in and you can deconstruct these oils you can you can run it through distillation you know you can take the terps out you can do whatever and then you can go back and be like okay well now i'm going to put them back all together but that that is not a full spectrum product right that's that you, you, they just don't go back together the same way that sure. they are grown in nature and that synergistic effect and he's a pretty cool guy that, I mean, he, what was his, what's his title? Confection he, stylist? He, he likes what to call he? himself confection. Yeah, he's a confectionery director, right? Um, <laughs> what, what a title, right? <laughs> right? Like, so. I want that, I want that title. I make food look and taste good. Like, yeah, exactly. whatever you bring me, I'm going to make it look better. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a haircut. Add some of this. Add well, some of that. Well, look at fast food commercials. They always make it look so. Good. <laughs> yeah, you need a guy. So you need a guy like that, especially in cannabis, because I mean, yeah. if, unless you like raw grass sprayed with skunk, yeah. you know, that's been yeah. dug up out of the dirt. See, I think, yeah. I think cannabis is just beautiful. So. Well, see, like, I, I mean, <laughs> I think is. we get we get used to it, right? I'm sure that when you go to your processing plant and then you spend all day there and you come home. I mean, you, you just, your clothes smell stinky. like, yeah, yeah, you get stinky. And I've gotten to where I, like, I don't, I don't mind it. I'm I used to I it. I hardly smell it anymore. Yeah. Right. I will say that it was a nice mix up and change, ha change having Julian come in because typically 
the lab just smells like cannabis, right? Oh, or sometimes yes. we get solvent or what. And now you walk in there and everybody that we have given a tour to leaves and says, wow, that is like Willy Wonka's chocolate fact. Now now we have these all these other fantastic okay, smells. Okay, now well. I'm down. This is good. <laughs> Do you give I got to come Can up come, there. Can we give a tour? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm we sure it's happy. hard for the public to, we, can't, to get it, to. It, it, ha- it has been hard, but, you know, everybody is is creating these, these post, I won't say yeah. post-COVID, but after COVID kind of yeah, hit. Sure. Everybody has created their their protocols, you know, right? Um, and and what you know their their tolerance levels are for uh, stuff like that. But. How does your family now? Th- because you're from Utah and you came back here, you worked a little bit in the cannabis industry or a lot in in LA, and now you're coming back here. You're you're neck deep in this industry. What does your family think? Like, how has that culture shift been? Sure. Personally. So, so I will say that, you know, we ended up in Utah, uh, in the back of a Volkswagen van in 1991 down in a small valley outside of Moab called Castle Valley. So what, my, what, what year of Volkswagen? Oh, yeah. What year? Oh, I think it was a 71. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. It was nice. My dad's had you know, multiple of those. Um, so my, my, my parents were originally from California. My mom from uh, Manhattan Beach area. My dad from San Francisco, uh, Oakland up north. And they were down in Mexico. My dad's a travel writer. He writes for uh, National Geographic and Condé Nast and stuff like that. He's actually doing uh, insurance stuff now. But uh, they they came back after 10 years in Mexico and the, the prices on property in California had just skyrocketed. Right. And they, they were just a couple bohemian hippies. And they're like, all right, what do we do? Let's hop in the van and drive to the first place that, you know, scratches our soul or whatever. And it ended up being, uh, Castle Valley, uh, Utah. So they they are, I, I will say, you know, born more liberal probably than most families here in uh, in Utah. More recently, you know, seeing me jump into the industry, unfortunately, that's not something my mother was able to see. She did pass away from cancer in 2017, um, which was just another another motivator for me because uh, towards the end of her life. Instead of using benzos or, or other opioids to help manage pain or avidans and, and Xanax and stuff like that, which in those final few months of your life, if you're battling something like cancer, um, they just they they take you out of reality and you're not there for those final moments. So my mom leaned on cannabis pretty heavily, um, and that you know really <clears throat> really. Uh, motivated me to to try and get it into more patients hands out here uh so yeah we started doing the cbd stuff like a year after that the following year we were ready to get into medical finally jumped in and so i would say you know my family they they love it even my extended family i have a bunch of family out here in utah uh aunts and uncles and and cousins and whatnot and they've always been uh supporters i i believe and pretty sure of medical cannabis and that's well, good. I mean, yeah. it sounds like it's really a pretty good. supportive and, uh, family. You know, and I think that, you know, although you hate to lose family members, and I'm, I'm sorry that your mom isn't here to see the success of Poojam and what you've been doing in the industry. On the other hand, it's nice to start to hear the stories of people who were able to utilize cannabis instead of just the barrage of stories that we hear constantly of patients who weren't able to use it mm-hmm. or or aren't aren't educated that it's out there and another tool. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to start hearing those. Yeah. I think accessibility is is huge. It's important. Right. Um, and the education and the accessibility for, for patients to be able to get it. Because like you said, there's some people in Utah that don't even know 
at this point that we there's so many patients program. like we, we we see patients every single day who come in and they're like I didn't even know tell uh, my friend just told me yesterday or my friend told me last week well, that this not, was not and I've had this pain yeah, yeah it's not yeah. it's not there or they'll see a billboard and they'll be like it's legal yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah there's there's plenty of pharmacies around and there's Seems it, it to goes be back growing. to the advertising thing, though. You know what I mean? It's because because you can't advertise about it. So where? How That's do you right. How do you get the word out? Mm-hmm. How do you tell people about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do think now it seems to be a growing grassroots, you can see it, this growing grassroots yeah. um, exposure, mm-hmm. this word of mouth thing that we're doing here that is just people want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I got to commend your guys' uh, work uh, on, on that on that part of things and on that behalf because people just need to hear conversations. People need to hear regular people talking about, you know, yeah. talking about the potential of this of this plant, which cannabinoid production is just one aspect of it, right? I mean, there's there's untapped potential in this plant. I mean, you look at look at the grain and fiber options, right? I mean, you oh, look yeah, at Levi's we... switching over and Wranglers and Legos going to all hemp plastic and Porsche making, you know, hemp cars. And that's probably going to be the next wave that we're going to see. I would say, you know, 2020. 21 is probably going to be the year of uh, outsized supply of, of fiber this time, uh-huh. right? <laughs> As opposed <laughs> right? to cannabinoid production. I mean, the plant intersects with more industries than any other any other plant on this planet. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even the, the center of the Global Hemp Association for Hemp Association <laughs> is right here in Utah. <laughs> right here in Utah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Where do you see this going? I mean, would you eventually like to grow? Would you eventually like to go bigger in the industry? Or where do you see this going in like the next five years for mm-hmm. Boojum? Yeah. Well, for Boojum, we, we, we really want to push the, the research, right? Um, and also out of, out of a need for survival, we need, people need to diversify, right? So you need to look at every single potential either distribution channel or, or revenue path, um, which, you, and also like, okay, well, how are the rules and regulations gonna, gonna end up right now that we have a, a dam in the, in the how or a dem in the uh, executive branch and the administration, obviously, and then now controlling the House and the Senate as well. So I think groups have to prepare for these things. And that means, you know, exploring these pharmaceutical swim lanes, exploring what do we do if adult use and recreational flips? Um, where do we where do we place our bets? Uh, if you look at medical markets, um, they have been just as if not more resilient to the recession and and COVID-19 to even adult use and rec markets, especially ones that lean heavily on uh, on tourism. So where we would like to grow is we would like to either you know be working with with other groups with cultivators to create uh, the most consistent products possible and what I mean by that is products that are consistent enough to be used for research for these pharmaceutical companies and that in addition to it being federally illegal one of the reasons why research has been so sparse is that it's very hard to grow this plant exactly the same every single time Right. Um, which means that now if you're going to go in, you're trying to do clinical trials, but you have uh, one batch of oil that has, you know, say 5% CBC and then this, you know, it's the same flower and the, somebody else extracts it and now you have 10% CBC. So all of these fluctuations and these differences that come primarily from the genetic of the plant, but then also how they were grown and then how they were processed, how they were, it, it can even come down to how they were stored. 
right? Yep. If you store plant material improperly or if it's too hot or something like that, it's going to isomerize. It's going to turn something that's going to turn into a CBN or something like that, right? Or it's going to go hot in the field, as I'm sure you guys know, oh, these, yeah. these hemp issues that people have had. So, you know, we need to, we need to fit standard models, right? Um, and this is the same even on the grain and fiber side. This is why Levi's and Wrangler, you know, are going, going into this, that end use market, it, it exists. But the production of the plant, whether for medicine or for fiber, needs to fit existing standardized models, right? You need consistency. It needs an existing infrastructure, primarily for production and distribution. Sure. I mean, the markets are too big to, to be inconsistent. Imagine Levi's going in with just a, mm -hmm. you know, a run of what we got out of the garden over here, <laughs> yeah. you know, and yeah. then, and then we grew some in, uh, you know, in the, in the U S South. And that was, that was a mess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That consistency, I think makes it harder to transition over too. But your to your point, I can really see a huge need. It's one of the things in medicine that I can't get my peers to accept cannabis as a medicine because it's so inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the products being consistent, I can prescribe amoxicillin and I know the patient is getting the same thing every single time. That's what Western medicine is all about. You have a symptom, you have an allopathic approach, and you prescribe a, medic a medication. That's how we study medicine. Mm -hmm. So, but no one is focused on building those uh, medications to study. Mm -hmm. You know, hopefully, Boojum can get into that and do some research on products that are very consistent. That's a that's. Very needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we are, we are actively working towards that. And we are re realizing more and more, while we will continue to focus on our category in the supply chain, we're realizing more and more that that really comes down to the genetic. It comes down to the plant because you don't want to be going in and paying these outsized sums to be processing, distilling, running through chromatography, isolating, and then recombining to create a medicine that's less effective as it is when it just comes off the, right. the plant, right? So looking for those kinds of partners that can, that can tackle these issues with us is going to be a big priority for us over the next couple of years. Exciting. I've learned a lot. I have too. And now yeah. I want to walk As across always. the street to Beehive and, <laughs> I know. and get some more of your right products. I'm looking, at, I'm looking right across the street at them. It'll be, yeah. What's you your most popular food? item? So the most popular item is the oral spray. Okay. Uh, yeah, the oral spray is by far, you know, our, our number one seller right now. I think because it's novel, we don't have a direct competitor, obviously, there in the, right. in the local market. And the onset, onset time is quick. And like you were mentioning, it's a low dose and it allows patients to slowly titrate it up and find their, their specific dose. Yep. Uh, exciting. It's a cool, it's a cool product. It's a cool idea. And that, that just, a, just one more exciting thing about cannabis. You can you can design whatever it is whatever you can imagine. You, it's, it's interesting. Like I Disneyland. I remember the first time I ever went into a dispensary in California like 10 years ago. And I remember seeing some of the stuff and I'm like, wow, it's more than just, you know, no, it's a, more a than just a that you pot of weed, you know. It's like, yeah. you know, creams and topicals and lotions and yeah. this and that. And 
Wow. It's it's incredible <laughs> how so how well it all works yeah. too, right? Like yeah. the topicals, yeah. uh, they they work in, incredibly well, you know. And yeah, to be able to, uh, what's great about going to markets like Colorado or something, uh, it is nice to see some of these like products like the chocolates, right? And also they don't have a lot of the same product limitations that we have here, um, even in terms of of how we how we explain what this product is to the patients, you know, and what ingredients we can use, right? Like we can't go out and make a huckleberry pomegranate gummy and say that on the gummy right now, even oh, though that yeah. would not appeal Why to a child. Why can't you say that? Because you can only use a list of the state's approved artificial flavors, which is maybe there's eight of them. See, and I didn't even realize that. I yeah. learned something new. Right. And there's besides, there are gelatinous cubes, they're yeah. not edible. Do you feel like that's over restrictive or do you feel like that that was it was placed in the right in the right spot and we can modify that legislation as we go I think the the legislation can be modified to more accurately reflect the initial intention of that piece of legislature uh, for instance what they are concerned about is that we don't put something on the front of that bottle that's um, attractive to kids Right. They right. Don't. I mean, that's the bottom line. That, you don't want kids taking line. all your taking all the cannabis, all the THC. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want and my kids an taking all my cannabis anyway. <laughs> I mean, of course, right? And and there are in states with medical and rec programs, there is an increase in ER visits for overdose for children. There really that, is. That's just a fact. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, more access wow. equals more mm -hmm. more overdose and more ER visits. You have to. There are ways to compensate for that, but yeah. that's just a fact. Yeah, I think that's a fact, but I think it's also important to stack it up to other um, other medications like opioids, right? If you look at the therapeutic index of uh, cannabis versus an opioid, you know, made from like a hair, like a um, opioid plant, a poppy plant, the the chance of overdose uh, with that opioid is a seventy to one, meaning you would need to take you know x amount yep. more to overdose on it. With cannabis, that is forty thousand to one. So in terms of um, you know the safety of the product, yes, we don't need to be putting product out there that that is attractive to kids or easily accessible for kids or is not in childproof packaging. But let's say that that does, you know, so, so whatever, your dog gets a hold of a bottle of gummies versus a bottle of Oxycontins and breaks it open and your kid accidentally puts one of those in their mouth, you know, well, I could this, tell you which one I would want. Exactly. <laughs> you know, very, very good point. I have an idea. You have, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you've got the, although the cases of cannabis overdose go up when you have more access you know, you've got to look at the opioid overdose, the opioid epidemics all go down in every state mm -hmm. that has access to legal cannabis. The yeah. opioid use rates go down. And to be clear, when you say down. cannabis overdose. I'm talking about THC overdose. Like just in terms of them calling Yeah, what would be considered yeah, a THC you would call, overdose? You would call a THC overdose would be something that, in my opinion, right, it would be something that either A, leads to a call to poison control. Okay. Uh, for for THC ingestion that was not uh, not but, anticipated, but not a fatality, uh, never a fatality. Okay. Do, do right? people never really call that for THC? Oh, I, I was going to say, all, I just yes, sit it out, man. Time. Just yeah. right. right. Just well, and cool. that's education. Uh -huh. <laughs> and when they come to the ER, and I still work some shifts in the ER, you know, and people will come in, and 
of course, you know, when I'm working with the physicians there, they're, they're always like, oh yeah, somebody's overdosed on, on THC, Tim, you're, the, you're it. <laughs> <laughs> this is your field. Go take care of them. And in every case, you know, it's just rec- rest, relaxation, a little bit of IV down, fluids, just, you know, just, just bring hello. in a friend and it's going to be okay. And it doesn't, no, it doesn't last forever. Yeah. And is it dangerous? I, I guess, depending on what your view of danger is. I right, think, but I, yeah. would I rather have them? I'd so much rather take care of them for that than watch yeah. them die of a. Sure. And we have, an opioid you know, overdose. we we have we have so many parents that that reach out to us who are trying to put their kids through the compassionate use board, right? For um for things like MS or, or debilitating seizures, and they say, look, at this point, a lot of these parents are they're saying this is this is palliative care this is end of life treatment at this point and i'm not going to give my kids opioids you know to your point about about opioid overdoses i'm sure you guys saw the study that came out I think it was fairly recent, maybe two weeks ago, but states that have um, enacted some sort of cannabis legalization, whether medical or adult use, have seen a 20% reduction in opioid overdoses. Yeah, it's a, huge, that, yeah. It's a huge number. Yeah. I mean, it just shows that this is, this is, this does work. Cannabis does work. Just if, if any listeners or if you have patients that need help with the compassionate use board, we get a significant amount of referrals mm-hmm. um, for that type of patient. And we work with the we work with the patient's primary care provider or their neurologist or whoever, um, because a lot of those specialties don't have time to learn a lot about cannabis. Mm-hmm. And um, the Compassionate Use Board has become I, I, I don't know it's modifying. We talked to Katie Barber about it a little bit, yeah, um, in a podcast episode before. Yeah, uh, uh, well, you know that's that's what you guys are here for, and that's phenomenal because people do need to know how to navigate, you know, these these waters and the bureaucracy and the and the red tape and everything. It's it's hard for us because as an operator and as a producer uh, and as an establishment here that makes cannabis products, you know, we can't we can't go out and be advising these parents about right. what to take or you know we'll we'll put them in contact with the right people and say, okay, this is the proper way to do things. But it's it's hard because a lot of people do reach out to us for that kind of advice, and it's not something we can uh, we can give. It's probably hard because you like sometimes want to give advice, but you have to be careful. Well, yeah, about what I mean, advice you know, give because you're like I'm not much. a doctor. Mm-hmm, yeah, I mean, like when I when we have we have a couple of really young patients that don't use THC but use fairly high dose CBD, and we contact the manufacturer directly wow. of the product because sometimes we need to tweak the products mm-hmm. a little bit. And these producers in Utah, I'm sure Bujum is the same. You know, there's, there's, a, it's important to get all of these these kids in these special cases what they need. So it seems like everybody's willing to go the extra mile yeah. mm-hmm. for yeah. that type of yeah. patient. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to ask him, Tim, before we wrap? I mean, anything no. else you want to talk about? Like, um, the mics are hot here. Like, yeah, sure. let's open it up, sure, man. Let's... Sure. Uh, I, I guess maybe I could go back to your initial point uh, or a question about, okay, well, where, where does Boojum go? Where do we want to grow? I think that what we really want to help create is, 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 is driving infrastructure development here, here in the state. And that means not only working on local infrastructure and exploring other diverse applications for this plant, but also working with legislators to help create 
a profitable business model in the state, right? And a lot of that's going to happen on the hemp and CBD side. So while medical cannabis is fantastic and uh, it's, you know, the market is, ro- is is new, but it's robust and it's growing and legislators are working with everybody in the industry to make sure that it um, is a success, at the end of the day, if you look at hemp and CBD yeah, either for cannabinoid production or grain and fiber those are huge markets, huge untapped markets at this point. I mean, we're serving, I think you said 22,000 patients. Yeah, something like 22,000 legal mm-hmm. users in Utah now. Yeah, but as soon as the, you know, we can kind of clean up the legislation locally on the hemp and CBD side and create a viable distribution models per rules and regulations, that's going to explode and it's going to, it's going to happen and it's going to happen soon. And it's going to help out a lot of these, uh, a lot of these local farmers for sure. Um, so we're, you know, my job as a, as the CEO of the company is really to focus on macro level strategy and, and direction of growth. Um, so we are looking for a lot of these kind of strategic hemp and CBD partners currently, but it's going to be, it's, it's, it's different. And people who are interested in, in getting into the market, you know, you got to start small, you got to make a consistent product and you got to have something that's going to help you kind of rise above. And you also have to think of CBD a little bit differently. Uh, CBD is not going to be the main it might may be the main active ingredient, right? But what we need to see is we need to see it start going to beverages. We need to see rules and regulations that are going to allow for its use as a food additive, such as New York and Colorado have recently done. So, I mean, I mean, there's a multitude of legislative changes, the least of which is certainly not any sort of uh, social equity and reparation laws that I think certainly need to be, um, you know, written into legislature here. And then on the medical side, I think there's some... Uh, some clear glaring issues, right, that that affect social equity and access to cannabis here in the state. For instance, the flower laws, right? Uh, you know, flower is the cheapest thing when you walk into the to the uh, dispensary for the most part. Um, it's what a lot of people are very familiar with. But at the end of the day, we have this flame law, right, that says right. you can't even you can't even light it up. So so you got to go home and you got you have to purchase uh, at least a yep, hundred dollar, hundred and fifty dollar, maybe even two hundred dollar device. Yep, because if you this. buy the twenty dollar one, you're well, just gonna buy it every month. A decent one is gonna be two, three, four hundred dollars. Right. Exactly. I mean, so yeah, it's two hundred bucks to buy a decent one for yeah, sure. Yeah, so so who so who who is gonna end up potentially getting in trouble for using yeah, this medicine, yeah. it's going yeah, to be lower point. income, uh, lower income individuals. Didn't even think uh, about that. Wow. I mean, really, what it is is it's a it's a dead man's trigger for for conservative opposition in the straight in the state to cannabis. So it's something that needs. To so change. you think Utah should allow smokable flour? They, I mean, they 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 do and they don't right now, right? They're selling it in the pharmacy, but they're saying you can't smoke it. So I think there's there needs to be some clarity on those sorts of issues. One hundred percent makes hmm. sense to me. I think they should allow it. I, I, you know, we always bring this up. I know we do. I know we do. Because I'm the provider and I'm like, well, 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 but the big picture. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You're the provider. It's not the best medicine, but (laughs) at the same time, you shouldn't get in trouble for it. Exactly. There we go. There we go. Maybe don't push it. But you shouldn't. It's like, hey, if you're a patient, if you have a card, Yep. Maybe educate them. Maybe say, hey, you know what? Let's this that's not the best way to consume it. Right. But don't don't right. don't slap on the wrist yeah. with it. And the market's oh, the market's so. moving there naturally too. I mean, we've seen it, we've seen it across the board uh in in other markets, not only during COVID, but pre-COVID as well, is mm-hmm. that flower market share is is getting eaten into year after year. 
How can people get a hold of you or, or your? How can they see your products? I guess Instagram, right? Yeah. So you know, according to the, the marketing and advertising laws right now, um, it's, there's too much of a gray area. We can't go out. We can't advertise, right? Uh, but what we are allowed to do is maintain a, a digital platform where we can, you know, show our products or talk about the products. Uh, I would say, you know, depending maybe on the pharmacy and who you talk to, the best place to learn about the products is in the pharmacies because they're going to be able to really sit down. They're going to be able to tell you a lot of things that we probably can't, you know, print and, and, and put on flyers and get out there. No, for sure. But like we were saying, I mean, your, your educational posters, mm-hmm. you know, are up in some of these pharmacies and they, they, they teach people. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that that's important yeah. It's a it's a great place to learn about your products. Yeah, and that's that's the one thing that we are allowed to do is create educational materials, right? So we can't we can't make a flyer and you know, make it all sexy and just shove a product down your throat. But what we can do is make educational materials. And that is, you know, what the industry needs. And, you know, despite saying, okay, well, these are the flaws in the local legislation, for the most part, I I would have to say the Department of Ag and Food, as well as the Department of Health, has done a phenomenal job with uh, with trying to structure this program in in the best way possible, both economically and uh, on, on the healthcare side for the patients. In our, your products in all the pharmacy dispensaries here in Utah is that you know of at least? Yeah, we we are all we are in all of the pharmacies. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, I wish uh, I wish we were you know had had more access to to, to more flour and more supply sure. and whatnot. But that's kind of a natural growing pain that I think everybody's dealing with. So we try to keep them stocked in uh, in every pharmacy as much as possible. And I'm sure as the you know 2021 goes into 2022, I mean it's just going to get better and better. I would imagine with right. supply. Well, yeah. I mean, I yeah. think 2020 uh, the, the real supply issues kind of died uh, with, because of uh, COVID. With 2020. Um, well, more also little, it just yeah. took them that long yeah. to get up and running. Like even when Trike and Randy, you know, came in, they were the only cultivator and are still one of only two, maybe three cultivators that are selling to uh, to third party processors. And they didn't even, you know, maximize the full, you know, full cap of their license because a lot of people just did not expect, uh, you know, the patient population to kind of explode the way that it did. 22,000. Yeah. So, so all these right. other groups are now, you know, getting it together, um, building out the, the remaining uh, allotted square footage of their license. And you know, dialing in what genetics they want to use, and so I now I know that there's multiple groups now that are going to be doing at least 500 pounds a month. So um, hopefully, what that translates into is lower costs for patients, right? Because one thing that um, that everybody knows is an issue here in the state is the price of products. You go on if you go on Reddit, if you go on Instagram, you go oh, talk yeah, like to anybody. It's about the price of, the price of the products, and what people need to realize is that that all starts with the cost of the flour. Right. If we if we're here and we're paying, you know, just to make the the math easy, uh, let's say seven hundred dollars a pound, right? If you look at other mature markets, they're more down around three to kind of four hundred dollars a pound or something like that. Now, because that cost has not come down and there are some factors that are creating that, one of those are, are these, you know, people co-packing flour, right? Uh, if if everybody's going in and everybody's buying everything that's in there, nobody needs to come down in price, at least from, you know, their perspective. And for us, when we when we don't control the grow or the cultivation, we don't control the cost of the flour. So if we want to find margins to make this profitable while also dealing with things like Section 280E, you know, that's why the price kind of it, it stays high. However, 
this year we have um, we we've developed some strategic partnerships, and I believe other groups are also developing these strategic partnerships that are going to allow uh, us to get medicine to patients at a, at a lower cost. Very cool. Well, that's good. Can't wait. No, no one can wait. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. everybody is is waiting for things to equalize, all the pharmacies to open. It's just, I mean, it's exciting because there's if you need the products, you can probably get them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the barriers will come down. Yeah, and, and it's also important to to bring people over from that illicit illegal market, right? Um, oh, for, for sure. For, for public safety, like if if you have patients that are going in and they're getting asked to pay three times maybe what they pay in the black market, and the product's not even on the shelf, they're just going to keep buying it from their buddy, right? Um, yep. So you know that's a, that's a cause for concern. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this has been a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Let's wrap, let's wrap this episode up. This absolutely. and bring bring them back through and and catch up. Yeah, and, we're excited and, to see uh, Bujum grow and and what yeah. products you have coming out and all the research. Awesome. Yeah, this will be fun. Well, uh, yeah, we'll uh, you know we'd love to maybe have you guys up uh, and you guys can check out the facility. Oh yeah, we'll and, come. Uh, we'll bring uh, the mics. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, bring the mics and we'll do one up there. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. Maybe maybe do a little video if that's allowed. You yeah, know, that'd yeah, that'd be great. And, uh, get some visual and. Yep. Uh, well, cool. Uh, really quickly, Tim, anything you want to mention? UtahMarijuana.org is how they can get a hold of you, right? Yep. Uh, UtahMarijuana.org and UtahMarijuana.org slash podcast is where all of the uh, podcasts are ho- are, yeah. uh, are available and we're caught up, Chris. We, we are caught up. We're and, caught up. They're uh, all there. Leave mm-hmm. us some reviews in iTunes if you haven't yet. We want to see some reviews in there. Share your podcast episodes. Uh, with your family and friends, because that's that's how we get the word out, right? We, that's right. Our advertising budget isn't yes. huge either. So. No, it isn't. And so, look for us in Salt Lake City. Oh, yeah. We've got an ad coming out in Salt Lake yeah. City. The yeah. Utah Weeds. Go cold. really cool. Go cold. Yeah. And, first uh, publication, right? First print. Yep. Yeah. First print. He's gonna He'll be a guest on uh, coming up. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. He was on episode 11, I think it was. Episode, go go back and listen to that one. Thank you again. It's Dashiell, right? Dashiell? Dashiell or Dash. Dashiell. Dash or Dash. Perfect. Dash. Thank you so much. And uh, like Tim likes to say, stay safe out there. All right, guys. Have a good week.